0: Welcome to this keynote address at the 2020 Australasian Aid Conference, delivered by Alex Hawke, Minister for International Development and the Pacific, and introduced by Helen Sullivan, Director of the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. In this keynote address, Minister Hawke outlines the key trends in the Indo-Pacific region affecting Australia's development partners and shaping its new international development policy. He also discusses Australia's long standing commitment to the region and its Pacific step up, and how Australia will continue to support the region and keep it strong. The Australasian Aid Conference is hosted by the Development Policy Centre at the Australian National University in partnership with the Asia Foundation.
1: My name is Helen Sullivan, and I have the incredible privilege of being Director of Crawford School of Public Policy. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we meet the Ngunnawal people and pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. As I say, it's a great privilege to lead Crawford, and uh, Crawford has a special mission as a School of Public Policy. Uh, We bring theory into practice, we bring scholars into conversation with a range of people from different walks of life. Uh, We engage in partnerships with extraordinary organisations and people Um, And we give voice to uh, people who ask difficult questions and who want to contest policy and the basis on which it's made. And through all of that, we focus on, on evidence. And I can think of no better conference uh, that exemplifies that mission that Crawford has than this conference. Um, And I just want to um, pay my my respects to Professor Stephen Howes and to Ashley Betteridge for the amazing work they do in putting this conference on every year. So. I'd also like to acknowledge that um, uh, not only are there all of you in this room, and there was a, there was a, a huge queue to, to make sure you got seats, uh, but we also have people in our overflow lecture theatres and people who are watching on livestream as I was yesterday. Now, one of the traditions of this conference is to have a keynote speech from a senior politician or civil servant. And so far in our six years, the conference has heard twice from the foreign minister, twice from the shadow foreign minister, and twice from the DFAT secretary. This year, we're shaking it up a bit, and we are delighted to have the Minister for International Development and the Pacific, the Honorable Alex Hawke MP. The timing is particularly serendipitous because, as I'm sure you all know, the government has underway a process to formulate a new international development policy. This is a joint project of Ministers Payne and Hawke, and Minister Hawke has been leading the consultation process. It would be unreasonable, it says in my notes, to expect the minister to reveal some new government policy at this conference. Well, I think you might ask him about that. (laughs) But we do expect to gain some insights into some of the government thinking into this critical area. Alex Hawke has been in Parliament since 2007. He is currently, as I mentioned, Minister for International Development and the Pacific. And he is also Assistant Defense Minister. But he has served in a variety of portfolios, from Treasury to Home Affairs. And he's has a wealth of experience to bring to this role. He'll be speaking for approximately 30 minutes. And he's also agreed to leave time for questions. So get your questions ready. Please join me in welcoming Alex Hawke.
2: Thank you, uh, Helen, firstly, for that uh, warm introduction and uh, the opportunity to be here today at the ANU. I'd also start by uh, acknowledging the traditional owners of the land and recognise Elders past, present and emerging. And uh, commend Professor Hughes and uh, Professor um, Howes Sullivan, I should say, um, Helen and Stephen, on the excellent work they've been doing um, for this event. Uh, especially the guests that you've had, having the Indonesian Deputy Minister yesterday, I think is fantastic as well to see. Uh, and the very timely uh, uh, conference that you're having here, uh, given that we do have our aid review coming up, and um, absolutely, I'd say Helen, I, was, I had in my notes that I was going to um, reveal things, but you've brought the ABC, so I'm sorry, <laughs> so, so I'm not able to do that now. So I'll just, I'll just take that page and put it in my pocket. It was supposed to be Chatham House. (laughs) We know how well that works. Uh, Look, I do want to acknowledge um, all of our officials here who have come from the department, and the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade helps um, with the uh, preparation of this conference. So DFAT does a great job in this regard. And uh, the government, as you know, is embarked on our uh, aid review. Uh, We're well underway with our consultations, and we'll uh, be uh, preparing our policy in consultation with DFAT and sectors uh, in coming months. Uh, But with us today, we also have our expert panellists uh, and the government's appointed an expert panel and advisory panel, uh, both to advise the government on the preparation of its policy, also to (laughs) test the government Uh, and also to test uh, the rigor of the policy that we're putting together and take input from you. We've got four of them here today. Of course, we've got Jane Prentice, we've got uh, Jack DeGroote, we've got Linda, and we've got James Batley. Uh, And absent, we've got Dennis Richardson and Catherine. So, uh, but they're here today as well, so I just acknowledge their presence. Um, I think they're um, they're testing me this morning. I think you're seeing how well I'm doing. (laughs) So I feel like I'm being marked by our expert panel. Uh, I should say uh, your attendance here is very timely, and uh, I'm sure your discussions are very timely as well. And I want to thank all of you who've participated so far in the consultations that we've had. We're enjoying the roundtable process. Uh, We have many of them. We've got more happening uh, back up at Parliament today. And we're trying to get through every sector, every uh, meaningful uh, area of... um, commonality that we can, and, and we're uh, working to a pretty uh, rigorous schedule there to make sure we take maximum input. And if you haven't got the opportunity to consult directly or appear at one of those roundtables, I'd encourage you to put in your submission. Um, I should say thank you to the Crawford School and the Policy Centre as well, and the leadership, the advocacy of the Asia Foundation, uh, and uh, the many sponsors, of course, who make today possible. We appreciate them as well. I think all of you know we've had a very difficult summer here in Australia and I think it would be remiss of me not to start by acknowledging the fact that uh, we are still dealing with the consequences of uh, a very difficult uh, bushfire period, uh, the effects of uh, changing climate, uh, a lot of prolonged drought uh, and, uh, you know, what has been really, a, frankly, a, a very difficult season of disasters, whether it be fires or, I don't need to tell you here in Canberra, um, very bad, severe hailstorms. Uh, and uh, many other things now with coronavirus and challenges that face us as a country, communities in our country, but also regionally as well. And I mention this, of course, because as Pacific Minister, I, I really do want to take the time uh, to say at the outset that Australians are absolutely in awe of the effort of Pacific people and Pacific countries uh, in assisting us in our hour of need. And uh, when you think about what's happened over the break, we've had uh, people in communities across uh, Pacific Island countries. Um, some of them have had wheelbarrows going down streets collecting cash. You've had church services where people have gone and, and donated a lot. Um, you've had governments send over their militaries, uh, their engineering calls, um, who have been so well received inside Australian communities. Uh, you've had so much going on. and. It's really humbling to think that sometimes countries with very little have actually put together hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars and sent them to us to help us in our hour of need. So I always start at the moment by thanking uh, all of the countries that offered support. I mean, there's been over 70 countries offer that support, but our Pacific family in particular uh, have really responded and, you know, we are there for each other in times of need. We've gone through a very difficult time. Uh, and I really want to thank, at the beginning, um, Pacific people who might be here today, people representatives from different countries, uh, but really uh, the entire nations of the Pacific for, for turning up for us and uh, making a, what is a, a really big difference on the ground. So we thank them uh, for that. And Australians have really been touched uh, and overwhelmed I think to see that contribution financially, physically, and, and through the uh, you know the great spirit of uh, Pacific people who've turned up here just to help out and uh, help us fix um, a lot of broken communities, so we thank them for it. Today, of course, uh, I'm going to speak about our international development program um, and I'm going to speak a little bit about uh, what we're doing with the review, but um, I'd start by saying I think all of us are entitled to feel, um, over the long term, very proud of Australia's aid program and very proud of our international development reputation. Uh, Our development program, of course, has helped us create so many economic opportunities, reduce poverty, improve education and health outcomes. Um, It's saved lives uh, during humanitarian crises, uh, restored stability in in many areas in our region, uh, wracked by conflict, Um, and it's also supported inclusion and importantly addressed uh, barriers of inequality, including in, in gender and other spaces. Um, today I want to speak a little bit about some of the major changes and trends in the development in our Indo-Pacific region. Um, I'm also going to touch on development efforts in, uh, in, 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 in our macro sense and how they're evolving uh, and our long-standing commitment to our region, what we're doing in our step-up uh, and our understanding of course how we're going to continue to support our region, our immediate region as a country and keep it strong. Uh, I think the understanding that when our partners are more prosperous and strong and stable and secure, our region is strong and therefore we are strong, uh, is well understood. Uh, The understanding uh, that healthy and well-educated communities in our region uh, will enable more entrepreneurial business, more economic opportunity, more skilled workforces and contribute to the growth that we're seeking and the trade that we want um, is also fundamental. Um, We understand high-quality infrastructure as well will help generate sustainable growth uh, and investment in the region. And importantly, we understand issues like gender equality uh, can unlock the potential of women and girls, and the inclusiveness in policy is also a key determinant in our region's success. Australians are good people, and Australians want to do a lot to help with opportunity in our region and help people live dignified and fulfilling lives and we've got a great record of it. Um, Our country stands for Australian values when we support development in our region. Um, We invest in a region that's fair, open, inclusive, and a region respectful of human rights, and a region that's guided by sovereignty, (coughs) importantly sovereignty, but also equality of nations and the rule of law. We're also for a region in in which smaller nations are not coerced or pressured by larger ones, uh, and where we work cooperatively together to tackle shared threats and challenges. And internationally, I think you'll agree, uh, those goals and values are synonymous with Australia. They characterise the way we engage at home, in our region and in the world. And they form the foundation of our contemporary partnerships that we have in our region today. And what I'd like to do now is explore, I think, some of those key trends that are in our region, uh, affecting our partners and shaping our uh, new international development policy. So firstly, our development partners uh, in the Indo-Pacific are experiencing, as you know, vastly different economic trajectories. Um, They all have unique characteristics uh, that shape their development opportunities. And the Indo-Pacific's home, of course, to some of the most dynamic emerging economies, uh, which Australia has deep and long-standing ties to. And uh, we're taking those ties even further by elevating many of those relationships uh, formally uh, to strategic and economic cooperation partnerships. Uh, I think that will bring great opportunity. Uh, It's also home uh, to the small island Pacific states, like Tuvalu, which I spent a week in last year at the Pacific Islands Forum. Uh, And with a population of just 11,000 with, you know, an elevation at the highest point of two metres above sea level, Uh, It really is um, graphic to understand the challenges when you go there for a week as an Australian from a large continent and a large island uh, to see a small, essentially, atoll with 11,000 people two metres above sea level and the challenges they face. Solomon Islands, of course, in which Australia's had such great engagement and enormous contribution through Ramsey, uh, which we made to stability in their development, um, is similar in that it faces so many economic challenges and potential security challenges. Our partners' different characteristics, I think, when you look at that, whether you go from Southeast Asia through the Pacific, there are real different characteristics of these countries, mean that uh, the evolving trends we see in the world today have different impacts on those countries. Uh, We know about rapidly changing demographics, capabilities and technologies that have the capacity to transform. Everyone here is involved in in sectors and endeavours that uh, wants to utilise those changes for the good of people. Um, Economic instability, climate change, global terrorist networks, transnational crime, pandemics, uh, maritime insecurity, uh, arms and weapon proliferations, um, rising illiberalism, and I think I would also add increased protectionism um, from an Australian perspective. There's a range of challenges that impact our region, Australia, uh, and the world in general. And then secondly, I'd probably cite that while great progress has been made in some of these goals in development, some development challenges are still entrenched for us as a country. Um, Over the last 25 years, we've seen billions lifted out of extreme poverty and the global poverty rate is at its lowest ever point in history, something to keep in mind. But at a macro level, um, we can say less people absolutely live in poverty than ever before. that growth and that endeavour hasn't been felt evenly and hasn't certainly been felt by everybody in our home region and our nearest neighbours. Entrenched poverty, of course, stops people from achieving their potential. Uh, It holds back national progress. And uh, when this unequal opportunity exacerbates social divisions, it, uh, it, it does add to instability and adds to the insecurity that we've seen. But I wanted to say uh, up front that I think without addressing the issue of entrenched poverty, we won't see progress um, against the 2030 Agenda and the Sustainable Development Goals, which all of us uh, aspire to see uh, great progress against uh, as countries and as individuals. Thirdly, I'd say our development partners are feeling the effects of geostrategic competition uh, and the international trade tensions that exist in the Indo-Pacific. And we know these trade tensions are playing out between our two major partners, uh, the United States and China. It's not exclusive to those countries. Trade tensions are at an all-time high at the moment. But they do impact our partners. They do impact our ability to unlock trade uh, potential with our development partners. Uh, And uh, it will continue to have a big impact on our region and the world. And while the ambitions I think of a more ambitious and uh, assertive China uh, are expanding. Uh, The reach of its political, economic, and strategic influence continues to grow. The status quo in our region is absolutely being challenged by this growth and this change. And the difficult and important questions that come to us as a government and comes to us through our development program and aid program follow from uh, challenges to the status quo. And those important questions include you know, about our institutions and the rules and the norms that we've all grown up with that underpin foreign affairs, that underpin trade, underpin security, and development relationships include, uh, you know, do our institutions and rules reflect the current global realities? Are they fair rules? Um, Do they work as intended? And how do we reform and strengthen those rules? And these are important questions to consider too in any discussion about development. Australian development partners rely on the certainty and the stability of these international institutions and that certainty and stability, if it isn't there, uh, can often impact our development efforts and what we're trying to do in so many places in the world. So Australia's position has been and will continue to be ensuring that these international rules and the international order does remain robust and effective in the face of unprecedented challenge. And I'm sure you'd agree with me, that's an important uh, thing for Australia to endorse. Um, open trade and investment, uh, being a trading country, is key and we, we see it as a key and economic uh, enabler of growth for our development partners. And we do need to work hard to counter protectionist instincts uh, as they continue to develop because Australia has been committed to the global free trade system. It works, it provides great benefit to our partner countries and we know it will continue to work for our region and we need to be, continue to be forthright advocates uh, for, against increasing protectionism uh, in this space. Fourthly, countries in our region are adapting to new sources of finance and uh, including from new donors in the private sector and the opportunities of greater connectivity. And I want to say a bit about this in our consultations. We've had some great um, discussions about new sources of finance. While Official Development Assistance or ODA remains obviously an important development tool, uh, it's making up a smaller and declining share of financial flows to developing countries generally. But what we have seen is success in other areas of policy, remittances, private capital, foreign investment, increasingly important for our development partners throughout the region, and in many cases, far outweighing ODA funds and flows that are available from governments. In 2018, the total ODA provided by all OECD Development Assistance Committee donor countries was just under $150 billion, that's the total in 2018 in comparison remittances just remittances reached US 529 billion dollars you can see the stark difference in those figures just there i'd point here locally to the success of this philosophy as well when you look at the fact that tongan workers for example have been picking fruit in far north queensland in meatworks in western australia and south australia <coughs> under our seasonal worker program and labour schemes uh, have achieved great success in tonga this year for the first time, uh, the total value of the remittances now exceeds the ODA development assistance that we provide to Tonga. Uh, and this is a big change, but a big success story for government policy and seasonal worker programs and the Pacific Labor Scheme. Uh, meaning that we are seeing from our market, from opening up our labor market, opportunities directly flowing to people in Tonga at a greater rate than the government can provide. Um, We know these remittances also succeed in an area of policy that's very tricky for government in that they flow directly to people in very remote and regional areas. And I can tell you as a government minister in many portfolios, it is very, very tricky in policy (coughs) to succeed in Australia or external to Australia to get money to flow to regional and remote areas. It's very hard to do. Uh, But yet the labour schemes have led to challenges emerging in regional areas of high flows of incomes that we have to address. So we have success, but we also have to continue to monitor and adapt to that success. For our development partners, of course, um, other opportunities have emerged, new donors, external sources of finance, and they offer great opportunities uh, to boost economic growth as well. But we know our partners need to tread carefully. They need to steer clear of investments that are economically or environmentally unsustainable or that create crippling debt burdens. And Australia, of course, has uh, advocated strongly and assisted our partner countries uh, against taking on crippling debt burdens or bad debt uh, that will, of course, punish those countries. For Australia, it does mean our ODA needs to, be avoid, it needs to avoid duplicating the role of the private sector and other sources of finance, which I believe that it does. And it needs to help countries in our region harness investment opportunities um, to get that durable and sustainable development outcome that we're all seeking. And finally, I'd say Australia and our development partners will face new and unexpected challenges, um, which of course will and potentially disrupt development gains. Uh, and as you know and i don't need to tell this audience um, from the people who make it up development is uh, a long term undertaking and the government's very cognisant of that as a development partner for countries in our region australia is valued because we do stay the course and we will continue to stay the course uh, we're also valued by countries in the region for being nimble and responsive where necessary and ready ready to respond to new priorities of partner countries So, conversely, while we understand the importance of long-term and enduring programs, we have to be able to do both. We have to be able to respond to the new priorities of our partner countries when they do emerge. And that's an important part of the competitor advantage um, as a partner uh, that we need to reflect in our approach to the future. And I'd cite the outbreak of the novel coronavirus is obviously another example of an immediate emergent threat in our region. Uh, something that we regard as a first-order priority. The health and safety of people in our region is a first-order priority for the government. Uh, and we've taken a range of measures al- already, as you know, to help uh, the, with the safety and well-being of Australians here and abroad, but we're also supporting uh, the Pacific with the threat of coronavirus, uh, and we're taking measures. We have already taken some measures and we're preparing more measures, as you would expect us to be well prepared in the case of an outbreak. Uh, You might already know, of course, that the government as well includes funding through the Indo-Pacific Centre for Health Security, which works with the WHO and the international partners on longer-term approaches to health in the region. Um, But the full human and economic cost of coronavirus won't be known for some time. But we make the commitment that we'll work hand-in-hand with international partners to ensure development gains are not lost in any of this, and uh, we, we keep an eye on that all the way through. And of course, what I'd also say is uh, one of the longer term and significant challenges, especially to our region here, is climate change. And we know that as climate change change impacts Pacific countries, extreme weather events become more frequent and disasters emerge more often. Um, We need to prepare uh, and be resilient and have climate adaptation as part of our approach with our development program. Uh, When you think about the destruction of infrastructure and the length of time it takes to rebuild uh, following disasters, the cost that it it, it has on on both partner countries and donor countries and the impact on those economies, uh, this obviously makes sense. Um, Climate change continues to pose one of the greatest threats to the development of this region and uh, we do share the deep concerns of our Pacific partners about the potential impacts of climate change and we will help them mitigate against it. So 2019, you might have seen, we announced uh, uh, $500 million, uh, over the next five years to build regional climate and disaster resilience, following on from the previous commitment of $300 million over four years. We've also created a dedicated climate, climate infrastructure window within the infrastructure financing facility for the Pacific um, to ensure we're sending a signal uh, to those people that are applying for projects or to the market uh, that we want projects coming through our infrastructure financing facility that are climate resilient, that uh, take into effect, into impact climate change and and climate adaptation. Um, You've seen the government also initiate measures like, uh, innovative measures, like the $140 million private sector mobilisation climate fund to leverage private sector investment in low emissions, climate resilience um, and solutions for the Pacific and Southeast Asia. And... uh, Climate adaptation, I think, and resilience will continue to be a top priority for our neighbours and therefore it'll continue to be a top priority for the money that we're spending and the way we spend that money uh, inside Pacific countries. And when we think about all these trends, um, we think about all these challenges, um, it's clear that our development approach uh, must continue to evolve when you consider the nature of the challenges that we face. Uh, Five years ago, of course, Julie Bishop sharpened the focus of our development program towards our region, the Indo-Pacific. Um, And I don't think that's been missed. Everybody here understands our focus uh, from a global perspective has returned uh, to the Indo-Pacific. This government, of course, is strengthening the focus of our development efforts again on our region where we have the strongest relationships, um, our national interests are the sharpest, but also we can have the greatest impact on developing countries. Uh, Three years ago, we released the White Paper, the Foreign Policy White Paper, which provided our framework... Um, for our international engagement, including development, but since that time, you know the change, the changes that have occurred. Uh, I've mentioned many of them already. Um, the the challenges to prosperity, stability, and of course uh, resilience um, will continue. And in the Pacific, you know we've had a particular area of policy to, to deal with those challenges, which is our Pacific Step Up uh, and uh, leveraging economic assets, cultural ties of both government, but the private sector and the business community, Uh, and of course that is an ongoing effort. We also need to continue to modernise our development approach, so it reflects contemporary partnerships in the region, uh, and ensures we have a joined-up approach across government efforts to respond to new realities. And today I'm pleased to share some of the priorities of the government's new development policy, uh, and I'll do so. I've deleted the page, Helen, (laughs) with the ABC filming away, so, you know, I have to you have to remember that future years. Um, But I will talk a little bit about those priorities now because I know that you are keen for me to speak about our new development policy at this juncture. So under a new development policy, we'll have a strong focus on the Indo-Pacific and we will differentiate our approach with Southeast Asia uh, and the Pacific, recognising they are different and unique regions. Um, We'll recognise the diversity that is in the region, the varied development outcomes we're seeking and the challenges. Uh, And the the particular nature of those bilateral partnerships, which really do differ greatly between countries in Southeast Asia and the Pacific. So as Minister for the Pacific, of course, you'd expect me to have a particular interest in the enduring development effort, but this is very much a joint effort between the Foreign Minister and myself so that you don't get too much Pacific bias. But I'm going to put my hand up and say I am absolutely biased in favour of the Pacific, which you'd expect me to be. But there's a tension between ministers, and the Foreign Minister, of course... um, Uh, and myself worked very closely together on formulating that approach. I would say of course to you though that the Pacific will remain uh, uh, signally important to Australia because it's where we live, it's our family as the Prime Minister says, it's our backyard, it's where we have the most historic and cultural obligations, uh, even when you think about it from the perspective of our Aboriginal people and their descendants in Melanesia over time beyond memory. It's therefore important we remain the biggest contributor of ODA to that region, and we are. And the government, of course, will spend our $1.4 billion into the Pacific this year. It's a record amount from an Australian government. So whatever you do read or hear about about um, the aid budget, the $1.4 billion is the largest amount that has been spent on the Pacific by any Australian government. Uh, and of course, that will continue to remain a high amount. Um, we know that will make a key contribution to building resilience and economic growth and social development in our neighbourhood. Um, and I can say to you in the second year of uh, the Morrison government's specific step-up, we have made significant pro- progress uh, in, in partner countries. Uh, you know, you can see the outcomes that we've achieved, in, in even through our opening up access to our labour markets and the, the very... Uh, great difference that is helping, uh, you know, people in in Pacific countries. But we've also completed, as you know, the Coral Sea Cable to um, Honiara and to Moresby, Port Moresby, uh, which is a a great investment in enabling infrastructure, that connectivity I spoke about earlier. We know that the high-speed internet has the capacity to revolutionise the lives and livelihoods of millions of people, particularly young people in the Pacific, which we know countries are young, emerging populations... Uh, uh, very, very young countries that need the opportunities of the high-speed internet and greater connectivity. But as you know, we've also done our $2 billion financing facility that will help with transformative um, infrastructure projects high-quality infrastructure, but that includes, of course, as many people ask me about, social and environmental infrastructure, um, safeguards, uh, you know, uh, training and employing workforces, and uh, it's a facility with our partners that will help avoid unsustainable debt burdens for high-quality infrastructure using Australian uh, expertise, which I think is perhaps the most important thing that we can do, is to have that expertise provided to our partner countries. Um, so... You will see it, I think, ensure Pacific countries have great choices when it comes to infrastructure financing, and putting in a climate window into it, of course, signals our very clear intention about the the quality of the infrastructure and the uh, imperatives that we expect. And you'll see us expand, of course, the Pacific Labor Scheme and the seasonal worker programs. We're not finished with those. We want them to increase. We want volumes to increase. We want access to increase, and the government will continue to pursue it. Um, We've got more than 800 people from across the Pacific already working in a wide range of sectors in Australia learning new skills and contributing remittances um, through our um, labour scheme. Uh, But we no longer also, importantly, look at our ODA in isolation, neither in the Pacific or in other other parts of the world. And that point I would make is that uh, in this review, we will uh, obviously be looking at the whole of government effort better than we ever have before. Better integration uh, across government, that is, what is the totality of what we spend and do in our partner countries across government agencies, whether it is ODA eligible or whether it is not ODA eligible, and I think you'll agree, better mapping the effort of government in the sectors that we're contributing in the countries that we're contributing and regionally will give us greater understanding and greater capacity to see the impact and the outcomes that we're having. Equally as important, I think, Australia will continue to be a leading economic development and security partner for Southeast Asia. Um, but our approach will be different from the Pacific Step Up. And the Pacific Step Up is a particular policy designed to understand and enhance our region. But Southeast Asia uh, will remain, of course, um, and Southeast Asian countries will uh, be uh, very important to our development assistance budget. Uh, it does total a billion in this current financial year, signifying its importance. Uh, but we'll also contribute continue to be a leading contributor to humanitarian responses, whether they be crises in Bangladesh and Myanmar. We've already provided 160 million um, since 2017 for humanitarian assistance focused on women, children, and vulnerable people, which has had a good impact. Um, we're going to continue to work across ASEAN uh, to, to, to trade, improve transboundary water management, to combat human trafficking, uh, but also continue implementation of the ASEAN Australia Smart Cities Initiative. Um, which is helping to unlock the potential in Southeast Asia and Southeast Asian cities. And from July this year, I think it's important to remember that the new Southeast Asia Economic Governance and Infrastructure Facility will also be helping countries to make difficult economic reforms, mobilise finance and implement quality infrastructure projects. Um, And throughout the Indo-Pacific, we'll continue a strong focus, both in Southeast Asia and the Pacific, on gender equality and women's economic empowerment. And Maurice's Minister for Women, uh, you know, with her addition of that portfolio, I think uh, sort of highlights and underscores our commitment um, in that in that portfolio being added to our development space. As one example uh, that I would cite, and I think it's important to cite examples sometimes, the Australian Centre for International Agricultural Research um, recently launched the Merrill Williams Fellowship to Support Female Agricultural Researchers in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, the fellowship's um, uh, recognise the inequality of education and leadership opportunities for women in agriculture as well as the opportunities to be gained from better research, uh, capability and innovation. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think this is a good example because we'll continue to ensure uh, development does this, that it does focus on on gender-related empowerment. Uh, and uh, I think you'd expect an Australian government, even where we haven't been able to achieve the success that we would like, to continue to focus on on issues like gender empowerment in our near neighbours. We'll also make sure our development programs respect and uphold the sovereignty of regional partners, um, helping maintain their stability and resilience and find pathways to prosperity. And obviously, this does translate to investment in governance and and we believe those investments continue to remain important. Um, We need those governance investments to make sure progress continues to be made in important areas um, such as human rights. But the new development approach will absolutely modernise our approach to partnerships. Uh, And I think you'd agree, and I think the the ethos of this age is that we've moved beyond the ethos of uh, donor and recipient frameworks for our relationships, uh, and nobody seeking a return to donor-recipient constructs. Our contemporary relationship for New Guinea example is is, is perhaps, um, to me, one of the greatest... um, examples of how we're evolving things through a comprehensive strategic economic partnership, but the close collaboration between governments on uh, budget issues, on development issues, on the co-alignment of governance, development, budget support, and uh, other matters that are very important to us, health, education, security. uh, Those elevated partnerships, I think, are more uh, likely to be the case with partner countries, uh, which will encompass our development policy. Under the new policy, of course, we'll work with uh, those governments to, to help them shape their contributions to their challenges. You'd expect us to collaborate very closely with partner countries and we'll continue to do so. But we also want to state absolutely that we want to continue to collaborate with partner countries and all partner countries that want to collaborate on helping people in developing partners are welcome. Whether that's China, whether that's India, whether that's Indonesia, whoever wants to collaborate with us, or we want to collaborate with them, partnerships can produce the best results uh, in development outcomes, and we we certainly seek those partnerships from uh, partner countries. But we're going to continue, of course, to work and collaborate more, uh, even more closely with the traditional partners that you would know, whether that be uh, New Zealand, um, United States, Japan, the EU, France, the United Kingdom, and Canada. And as Pacific Minister, I can tell you the interest and the actual engagement from all of those countries I've mentioned is higher than ever before. It's certainly an opportunity for all of us, uh, you here, us as a government, and us as a people, to take advantage of that interest and that engagement and that opportunity to boost those partnerships um, with key partners inside uh, our region. But we're also gonna continue to support those multilateral efforts we know make a huge impact in our region and that work. And again, this is where the health and education frameworks uh, have their best impact through some of the regional or multilateral funds. Uh, We've seen uh, funds such as Gavi and the Global Fund, which we continue to fund. Um, We continue to look for those that will have uh, great impact and outcome impact when we're looking at multilateral funding. And you'd expect us to do that. Uh, I also spoke earlier, I will just say, lastly, about the increasing important role of the private sector in development, and uh, there's no doubt we'll continue to emphasise that. There is great scope to better harness personal, cultural, community connections, but also the private sector and the private sector collaboration uh, with our development budget. And we'll look look to you for those um, contemporary suggestions and those contemporary offers about how the private sector can continue to contribute to development outcomes. And of course, we need to look at how we can continue to strengthen our partnerships. Um, I shouldn't leave the best bit to last for you people, from NGOs, (laughs) including through the Australian NGO Cooperation Program. You've probably been waiting for me to say it. we're currently partnering with 57 accredited Australian NGOs. Uh, I know many are here today, and we welcome you, and obviously we regard you as uh, seminal in the delivery of our development programs, and when you'll remain so. So you know, we'd encourage you to have as much input into our review while, while, as you can, um, with an eye for you know, what is a contemporary um, update needed to our policy. Finally, of course, we'd recognise that the breadth of our contribution from Australia to the development of our region extends um, well beyond our ODA, as I've mentioned, and uh, make no mistake, um, we understand the importance of the development program and the ODA budget and its critical development tool, and we want to make sure it's working effectively and it's part of our wider efforts. But we do need to better align Australia's diplomacy, our trade, our defence, our education, our commercial opportunities and community links with the development program, and it will be a prime focus of of this review. My own appointment as Minister in First Time, a Minister's been appointed in Foreign Affairs and the Defence portfolio is about that whole of government cooperation that we're achieving into the step up. Uh, We also want to achieve whole of government cooperation into the development space and better whole of government cooperation. And aligning those uh, interests and those policy areas and those expenditures, I think will make a big difference. So in that regard, I'd also say the new um, Indonesia-Australia Comprehensive Economic Partnership is a great example also of how our trade and development agendas can work together to support uh, the regional development outcomes. And uh, I think you'll see that with the visit of the the President uh, just last week uh, and the ongoing elevation of that relationship. You'll see uh, the outcomes in terms of development as well that we're seeking through enhanced partnership. Uh, But without these right conditions that we're seeking, our partners, we don't believe, can take full advantage of the opportunities that exist. And that's why the Prime Minister has put an emphasis on elevating partnerships in um, Southeast Asia. And you've seen uh, other partnerships being elevated as well. And those processes will help us deliver better outcomes. I want to state again, I think, before concluding today, that I think, uh, you know, we are seeking those outcomes that you would expect an Australian government with Australian values to seek from our development budget. Um, We know without security and stability in our region, the development partners can't reduce poverty. They can't foster the peaceful development of their countries. But we regard, as I said at the outset, poverty reduction as fundamental to achieving stability, prosperity and resilience. Um, Just as stability and security and prosperity in our region are also the prerequisites to that that development. And so I think we should have an ambitious agenda uh, with our development review. Um, But we should also recognise the things that we do very well, the partnerships that have succeeded, the high reputation that Australia has uh, and the optimistic nature of Australians, whether it be from our people, from our NGOs, from our government officials, uh, the can-do approach that Australians take is well-received in our region, in our world, and I think it should continue to be a prime uh, cultural fit with how we approach development and what we can achieve. I do want to thank everyone that's made a submission so far. I do want to say again, you do have an opportunity and a window to make those submissions and attend our stakeholder consultations. Um, the conversations that I've been part of and the expert panel's been part of so far have really been centred on uh, great improvements to the development program and things that we can do better, recognising the situation that I've, of the context that I've explained today. But again, you know, given our, our outlook as a people, given our reputation as a country, um, we have the opportunity to do so much more together. This review will give us the chance to update uh, our policy, uh, refresh uh, what we are doing in light of a, a rapidly changing world. But I, deliver keep, uh, I believe keep the focus, importantly, on the things that really matter with the development budget, and that, that's the outcomes that we're all seeking to achieve. So thank you for everyone being here today in this lecture theatre, and thank you to all those in the overflow. I'm sorry you couldn't get in. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a few minutes short because I've deleted the page of um, of, um, <laughs> of uh, secret revelation. <laughs> <laughs> so where are we going to do questions? Right? Um, no, I think we're to From think oh, so you're yeah. going to moderate. You're going to. I'm I'm going
1: to moderate. You're Don't to... worry, I'll protect
2: you. I'm happy to choose questioners. Uh... <laughs> um,
1: okay, so we have a few minutes for questions because the minister has. has uh, uh, kept to time, which is fantastic. Um, lots in that to, to digest. So, um, if you have a question, please raise your hand, wait till the microphone comes, say who you are, and please keep your questions short. So, we have a question
3: here.
1: Mm. And we'll take a few questions.
3: Thank you. Um, Anne Kennedy, I'm an independent consultant. Um, Just wondering where things like um, a possible reinvestment in things like Radio Australia fit in the new uh, paradigm. Australia had great um, soft power advantages from um, those kind of initiatives which could be done in partnership with uh, countries in the Indo-Pacific and I think um, helped to leverage our relationship with those countries for minimal investment.
2: Yeah, thank you. This is a good question. I won't propose to uh, answer, directly what will happen with particular components of the budget today. Um, That wouldn't be, uh, in our review, that wouldn't be wise for me to do that at this point. Um, However, your questions are about uh, communications and Radio Australia. Uh, I can say the government has uh, obviously got a number of initiatives in um, the communications space, especially in the uh, Indo-Pacific, that we uh, are supporting. Um, We have our uh, free TV contract rollout, of course, uh, content that will be delivered to the Pacific um, uh, soon. And, uh, you know, we do talk with our uh, relevant uh, media and communication partners, um, including the ABC, regularly about, uh, you know, the things that we can do better Uh, in the region and the things that we can fund uh, to ensure that uh, we do have good quality Australian content, um, Australian uh, conversations and uh, a two-way dialogue. Importantly also, uh, how do we get more regional stories coming into Australia? Uh, How do we get more content coming into Australia? So there's a a greater shared understanding between um, communities and partner countries and You know, there's a real market for this in my view. There's a real need for this in my view. And I think, uh, you know, that will continue to be a focus of us. Uh, You know, obviously Radio Australia plays a very important part um, you know, New Zealand uh, has a great commitment to this as well. Some of our partners have certainly demonstrated um, great commitment to investment in this space. We we see that, we see the success of that, uh, and we understand it's important as well. Today, I won't directly answer any question that says, "Are we refunding this or that?" But I will say um, this will be an ongoing area of policy, and uh, you know, we understand its importance in the region. Uh,
3: question. Um, yes, Fiona Ryan from the Cairns Climate Action Network. Yeah, I'm um, sorry.
2: I, oh, yeah, I can see you. I couldn't see where you were. That's all right. No problem. <laughs> um,
3: yes, yeah, so I'm just asking about. Uh, it's great to see you're putting more money into adaptation, particularly in the Pacific. But every time this extra money is announced, it's always saying it always says from the existing aid program. So it's not new money. It's taking money from other parts of the aid program. Mm. So. And um, that kind of goes against what was said in the initial um, Climate Change Treaty, you know, uh, back in 92, you know, that all funding for climate finance should be new and additional and um, certainly uh, making statements and um, in reality the fact is it's just transferring money from one part of the aid program to another.
2: Yeah, no, thank you. And look, we're you know very aware of that issue. Uh, the government took to the election uh, a budget uh, for the aid budget, and that's why um, we've highlighted in the review. Um, given that we've taken that budget set with um, indexation resuming of the aid budget in in 2022-23, uh, that that will be the budget. Um, so. Uh, Yes, we do have to reprioritise within the budget that we hold. Uh, Climate certainly um, is a reprioritisation effort that we're seeing through much of the expenditure we're doing, and that's in response to what we're hearing from partner countries. So obviously partner countries want to talk about the climate adaptation, climate resilience uh, frameworks for infrastructure uh, for their needs more often, and and we listen very carefully, as you'd expect us to, and respond to those uh, needs and reprioritise accordingly. But yes, the budget is set, and, and it is fixed, and it is, um, the government's position is that we'll, we'll take that budget through in this, uh, this budget cycle. Thanks.
1: Question at the back. Uh,
4: thank you, Minister Alfred Schuster uh, from APTC. Uh, just a quick uh, acknowledgment of your recognition of the Pacific's assistance to uh, the, uh, mm. the, uh, the, the fires, uh, disasters here in Australia. Mm. Uh, So I I don't speak for all Pacific people, but I guess as a Pacific person, just to uh, recognise your acknowledgement. Which brings me to my question in the spirit of partnership. Uh, Australia has demonstrated uh, a very strong commitment to the regional sort of uh, and collective decisions uh, around development, whether it be in education, security, uh, uh, health and so forth. But I guess one of the the true tests of, of a partnership is not when we're at home, but when we're abroad. Mm. And I just wanted to ask: when we look at the political coalitions that's been formed and that Australia is a part of, for example, the Pacific Islands Forum, how do you reconcile sort of the differences of perspectives within that coalition when it comes to facing global platforms? And I guess the example here is on climate change. And what are some of the, the suggestions you might have as uh, the Minister for International Development, and more importantly? Of the Pacific to reconcile those differences when it comes to uh, the global negotiations as a collective to the Pacific Islands Forum.
2: Yeah thank you that's um, oh well firstly thank you for your opening comments as well and thank you again. Uh, that's a very intelligent question um, about foreign affairs and uh, these things are very complex. The Pacific Islands Forum though I attended for a week It's my first Pacific Islands Forum uh, as a minister, Uh, you know, I had the chance to engage with uh, all of the leaders. I was there representing us uh, for a week uh, before the Prime Minister arrived and and obviously took over with his colleagues. And often the realities of these uh, international forums are different from how they're reported in the media in many occasions. Sometimes the information we receive in the public domain isn't the way that the forums are conducted and I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about there. The Pacific Islands Forum, you know, there's a whole week there spent on really important subject matter that receives virtually no coverage. One of the best things that I uh, saw there as a government minister in the week I was there was. Um, a scientific presentation with a policy and political edge on uh, fish stocks in the Pacific and how climate would impact fish stocks, including the relativities of increases and decreasing stocks in various areas. It's not sort of a uniform decrease, as you'd expect. There's scientific implications, positive and negative. And for policymakers, I guess those experiences are very valuable. So most of those, uh, in most of the regional forum. this is the premier regional forum, you're right to point to it, the Pacific Islands forum. So, most of the forum there is, is shared partnership, shared challenges, shared discussion, shared progress. And then, of course, there's disagreements. And uh, disagreement isn't always division, I would say, about various different issues. Um, the leaders came to a joint and unified position on the Kaneki II Statement. Australia is a signatory to the Kaneki Statement, as is every Pacific Island country. Uh, That process, I think, is rigorous and robust, but issues are canvassed underneath that that are very difficult challenges, including climate change issues for a country like Australia with an advanced economy, but also climate change challenges for Pacific countries that can be reliant on um, fossil fuels for diesel power generation. How do we overcome these challenges, as well as how do we meet um, our international commitments? And then, of course, as you point out, there are then more global forum, in relation to uh, these discussions. And uh, it's, it's absolutely the sovereign right of every country and region to take their positions in the international stage. Uh, Australia does that on a case-by-case basis. Um, you know, we would uh, uh, always, um, you know, uh, stand up for our Pacific partners wherever we can uh, in all international forums. Uh, however, uh, we also have to respect our own sovereignty and our own right. and. I have to say, a week in the Pacific Islands Forum, the understanding of that from the the Pacific Island leadership, uh, the leaders of those countries, and getting to know them a bit, there's great respect between us about um, standing up for our own positions and our own sovereignty, and uh, I think uh, that is the overriding principle that uh, I think builds mutual respect. We understand when there's a difference uh, between us, but we understand that you have a sovereign right to do it, and I think Pacific partners understand we have a sovereign right to do it when we need to.
1: Okay, um, I'm sure that there are lots of more questions, but I'm also aware that uh, we have a very tight schedule to, uh, to keep oh. to and uh, your know, morning tea awaits
2: you. That's great. So, so you're cutting off the questions, Great, right? <laughs> Fantastic. Questions, but, I'm um, happy to take more.
1: <laughs> well, you know, um, we, we'll leave them wanting more. I think that's, that's the best. Very thing.
2: tough, Helen. You're very tough on this audience. Helen. I am. Um,
1: But please join me in thanking <laughs> the Minister very much. Thank very you.
0: You have been listening to Dev Policy Talks, a podcast by the Development Policy Centre at the Australian National University. To find out more about Dev Policy and our work on Australian aid, PNG in the Pacific and global development policy, visit our website, devpolicy.anu.edu.au or check out our blog at devpolicy.org where you can subscribe to our daily posts, various newsletters and this podcast. You can also connect with us on social media. And thanks for listening.